1: Father, we depend on you this morning. That's what we are, Lord. We're God-dependent. We depend on you now, Lord, to open our eyes, reveal to us hidden things, Lord. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter five, verse one, Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain when he was set. His disciples came unto him. He opened his mouth, taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Okay, so here we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a, you know, when we consider the Sermon on the Mount, when we look at this, You just can't help but do a comparison between this great mount of the sermon and the other big mount, which was, that's it, Mount Sinai. Because the two mounts, there's such a difference there. It's really a difference between the old, what we call the old covenant, the Old Testament, and the new covenant, the Old Testament of the law, the New Testament of grace. So here on the mount of the sermon stands the Lord Jesus Christ, just as on Mount Sinai stood Moses. Moses. Mount Sinai was a rocky place. It was a rough mountain. It was in the desert. Here at this mount of the sermon, it's in the middle of the land of Israel here. And this is where Moses stood. And on Mount Sinai, it was concealed. There were clouds that was surrounded by a very frightening thunderstorm that was going on. But here we have a calm Mount of the Sermon. It's very inviting. Mount Sinai was very, it had very strict boundaries set around it. There were terrible warnings associated with those borders. It says in Exodus 19.12, Exodus 19.12, thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about saying, take heed to yourselves that you go not up into the mount or touch the border of it, whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death, there shall not a hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be beast or man, it shall not live, when the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount, so, but here on the sermon, here on the mount of the sermon, there was like an invitation to the people, an invitation from the one who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Here's a mount of this sermon where there's the invitation that's coming from Isaiah 45, 22. Isaiah 45, 22, which says, look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there's none else. This is a mount of Isaiah 55, 1, Isaiah 55, 1, where the invitation is, ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. He that hath no money, come ye, buy, eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is a mount here where the Sermon on the Mount is where there's the invitation of Isaiah 118, 118. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be like wool. On Mount Sinai, the people were running away. We're running away from it. It says in Exodus 20, verse 18. 20, verse 18 all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. But here on the Sermon on the Mount, here on this Mount of the Sermon, the people are coming, coming to the Lord Jesus. And now, at Mount Sinai, the people said, We don't want to talk to God. We don't want to speak to God. It says in Exodus 20, verse 19, Exodus 20, verse 19, they said unto Moses, speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, fear not, God is come to prove you that his fear may be before your faces that you sin not. And the people stood afar off. And Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. But here on the Sermon on Mount, it's not like that at all. People wanna hear, they wanna get close, they wanna listen, they feel at ease. Later on, they're speaking directly to the Lord Jesus, they're asking him questions. But on Mount Sinai, God's message was very simply a law, a law of 10 commandments that were written on tables of stone, hard stone, says in Exodus 24, 12, Exodus 24, 12, the Lord said unto Moses, come up unto me to the mountain, be there, and I'll give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which I have written that thou mayest teach them. And then in Exodus 31, 18, Exodus 31:18 it says he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of commanding with him, with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. But here on this Mount of the Sermon, God's message is not given to them on stone, it's directed to their heart. Has words like, blessed are the pure in heart. And this contrast is given in 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, 2 Corinthians 3.3, 3, which says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. Mount Sinai, there was just one demand after another. Most of them in the Ten Commandments, beginning with the word no, that's how it is in the Hebrew. It doesn't say thou shalt not. It says no, 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 low, low, low. And with each one of those demands, the hope of life, the hope of heaven, the hope of seeing God just got farther and farther and farther away until there was no way that man would be able to see God, to go to heaven, to have life. But here on the Mount of the Sermon, This is all different. Hope of life and seeing God and and getting close to God, going to heaven are based on conditions of being poor in spirit, on being meek, on being mourning, on being uh, hungry and thirsty after righteousness, being merciful. On Mount Sinai, these tables of the law, they were broken in front of the people because of the sins of the people. But here on this Mount of the Sermon, the breaking of the law was solved. The problem was solved by God. It was a sacrifice that was coming for sinners that's going to enable them to come to God. Mount Sinai condemned the people. It condemned them. But here on this Mount of the Sermon, the people are comforted. They're told that, that more, and they're going to be comforted with an assurance that they're not going to be condemned. In Mount Sinai, there was no regard for the weakness of the people. Not at all. No regard for the need of sinners. It was just here's the law, here's your judgment, here's why you're condemned. But here on the Mount of the Sermon, the weakness of the people is addressed, spoken to more. They're mourning. They're weak. They're mourning. They're weak. They're poor. And Mount Sinai, everything about this law was what you must do. Do, do, do. But here is all what you must do. But here on the Mount of the Sermon, it's all what you must be, how you should be. So what the law did, so what in Mount Sinai did, what the law is it took life away from the people. People ran to a religion of laws and rules, which later they made up, and what they call the oral law, which was, uh, but here on the Mount of the Sermon, man ran to the Lord Jesus as God for a relationship, not a religion, but a relationship with him. In short, what happened at Mount Sinai? The law terrified the people, and it made the people run away from God, But here on this Mount of the Sermon, the words of the Lord Jesus, it drew the people to God. So when you look at Mount Sinai, you can see in Mount Sinai other mounts, like sister mounts to Mount Sinai. There's the Mount of the Curse of Ebal. There's the Mount of uh, Mount Carmel. All these mountains, these sister mounts, judgment fell. But the Mount of the Sermon has its own sisters. It's different from Mount Sinai and its sister's. The Mount of the Sermon has the sisters of Mount Moriah and Mount Zion and Mount Calvary and the Mount of Olives with Gethsemane where condemnation didn't fall and judgments didn't fall, but sacrifices fell to the people. So Mount Sinai and its sisters, it was all about what would be done to man because he was a sinner. But the Mount of the Sermon and its sister mounts like Calvary was all about what would be done, not to man, but for man, as a sinner. Now, this isn't to say that when Moses spoke and he preached that it was just all this condemnation and judgment, because Moses did grace. Moses did give laws concerning sacrifices for sin and sacrifices for peace, but here on the mount of the sermon, there stood the prophet, that Moses predicted would come. When he said in Deuteronomy 18.15, Deuteronomy 18.50, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren. Like unto me, unto him you shall hearken. What Moses was basically saying there was that you'll have a last chance. This is the last chance for man. This is the last chance which is to listen to the prophet, the Lord Jesus, the prophet. So here we are. We're in the center of the Sermon on the Mount now, and it's called the Mount of Beatitudes, and that's because they all start from the word blessed are. And you might ask, you might ask, where did that name come from? Beatitudes. Well, it comes from Latin. But the issue here about the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, is that we're in Matthew's Gospel, and of the four Gospels, this is the Gospel that contains the entirety of these Beatitudes, or this Sermon on the Mount. There, I mean, the other Gospels, they have little snippets here and there, and you find them in John and, and Luke, but here it is, and it's full. And that's important for us to look at, because the Gospel of Matthew is unique and particular because of what? What is it about the Gospel? Why is this Gospel different from all other Gospels? It's to the Jews. It's to the Jews. It's to Israel. And so there's a special prophetic significance about the sermon on the mount or about the beatitudes that relates to Israel. And we've seen that from verse 4 that from verse 3 the poor in spirit they're blessed because they're going to get the kingdom of heaven as the Lord Jesus said in Luke 12:32, Luke 12:32, fear not little flock for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We saw from verse 4 that they're blessed when they mourn because they are going to be comforted, just like God said to Israel in Isaiah 51, 12. Isaiah 51, 12, I even I am he that comfort thee. We saw that from verse 5 that the meek are blessed because they're going to inherit the earth. We saw from verse 6 that the hungry and thirsty after righteousness, they're blessed because they're going to be filled, they're going to receive the righteousness of God. We saw from verse 7 that the merciful are blessed because they're gonna receive mercy. And in verse eight, we saw that those who had a heart that was purified by God, that they're gonna see God. But now we come to verse nine with a particular eye toward Israel where it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God. Peacemakers. I mean, that's interesting because it doesn't say in verse nine, blessed are the peaceful they're gonna be called the children of God, but it says, blessed are the peacemakers. What's the difference? What is the difference between a person who is peaceful and a person who's a peacemaker? What would you say? Okay, that's a good one. Passive versus, versus active. Clinton? Oh, yeah, that's another good one. A peacemaker has an effect on others versus just on himself being peaceful. Anybody else? Reconciliation. A peacemaker is a person who makes reconciliation for others. Okay, very good, right. Anybody else? So a peaceful person avoids stress, right? If there's stress and there's conflict, he'd rather have, go, go have lunch, you know? He's a peaceful person. He's not into conflict. But a peacemaker makes peace between warring parties, which means that the peacemaker is driven to the conflict. He doesn't shrink away from war between parties. He enters into this here so he can bring peace between the parties that are are warring. He's a peacemaker. Peacemakers get hurt. But the threat of being hurt, it doesn't make the peacemaker stay away. The peacemaker, he runs into the fray. He's going to make peace. He lives to make peace. He looks for ways to make peace. He's a peacemaker. And the Lord says, blessed are those kind of people. Blessed are the peacemakers. So you look at verse 7, and you see that there's a merciful person here. You look at verse 8, and you see there's a person who's pure in heart. And then you realize that this is the same person when you come to verse 9, that it's the merciful, it's the pure in heart. He's a peacemaker. And the greatest war that there is for man is the war with God, is the war with God. And you say, why is man at war with God? What's the war, What causes to be at war with God? Well, the Bible says that a man is at war with God when he has a mind, he's got an orientation, which is all about himself. When he's just living to please himself, he's just living for self. The Bible says, he, the Bible calls that Living after the flesh, it calls that minding the things of the flesh in Romans 8.5. Romans 8.5, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's at war with God. It's an enemy with God. It's not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. The carnal mind doesn't care about what God says. doesn't care about the law of God. Is living for self. The carnal mind says, hey, I'm only here for one ride. You only live once. I'm going to get the most out. I'm going to please myself. Whatever feels good, that's great. The Bible says that sin causes a person to be at war with God. It says in Isaiah 59.1, Isaiah 15, nine, one the Lord's hand is not short that it cannot save. His ear is not heavy, he cannot hear. Your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So you have in the Bible this contrast between God and the world, God and the world. And the Bible makes it very clear that you're gonna be a friend with one but not both. If you're a friend of the world, you're gonna be an enemy of God. And each person has got to make their own choice. They're going to be a friend of the world, an enemy of God, or they're going to be a friend of God and an enemy of the world. And that's what it says in James 4.4. 4, James 4.4, 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. So the lost so what the lost do, they side up with the world and say, you know, this, this world's a great place and I love this world and they're the lost and they're at war with God. And the peacemaker sees that and the peacemaker, he's not indifferent, he looks at the lost and they're at war with God and the peacemaker rushes in. He wants to make peace between the lost and God. And this is the merciful person, this is the person who's pure in heart and he doesn't, the, the, and he's the peacemaker and the peacemaker doesn't look at the lost and say, well, too bad for him. Uh, at least I'm saved, no, the, the motto of the peacemaker is leave no man behind, leave no lost behind. The merciful, the peacemaker, the pure in heart, the peacemaker, he doesn't look at the lost and say, well, too bad for him, must not be part of the elect, must not be predestined to believe. At least I'm part of the elect, I'm safe in the lifeboat. That's not the peacemaker. The peacemaker says leave no man behind. So the description of the peacemaker is given to us in great chapter Isaiah 52. There's one verse that describes this peacemaker in verse 7 when it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good things of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. So this verse describes for us what a peacemaker is. And it's a description of the peacemaker in Israel. And it doesn't say that a peacemaker is passive. A peacemaker is very active. He's out there. He's got feet that are moving. He's got a mouth that's preaching. It's publishing. He's going. He's on the move. And it doesn't just apply only to Israel. It is for Israel here. It doesn't apply to only Israel. It's just another one of God's look at Israel for an example. It's another one of God's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's the phrase that's used in regard to salvation. That's the phrase that's used in regard to the gospel in Romans 1.16, in Romans 1.16, which says, where I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the gospel, salvation, to everyone that believe it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's Israel's salvation here. And they're being transformed, Israel's being transformed in Isaiah 52 into peacemakers, So this chapter in Isaiah 52, it opens with a call to wake up. Wake up, Israel. It says in Isaiah 52, 1, awake, awake. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee and the uncircumcised, the unclean. So God is calling Israel to wake up. Put on strength. God has provided strength for you, Israel put on the strength, and when Israel obeys God in Isaiah 52.1, and they take on their new strength, they're described then in Ephesians 6.10, Ephesians 6.10, that they're going to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When Israel responds to this call to wake up in Isaiah 52.1 and take this new strength, then they're going to look at themselves and say the words of Philippians 4.13, Philippians 4.13, where they're going to say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. When Israel finally does take on this new strength and God supplies them with this strength, they're gonna look in them themselves and they're gonna say the words of Colossians 1.11, Colossians 1.11, they're gonna say, I'm strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto the patience and suffering with joyfulness. But the greatest awakening that Israel's gonna have is when they're saved, And when they're going to, as it says in Isaiah 52, 1, 52, 1, they're going to put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. This means that when Israel is saved, they're going to come to see that what they're wearing is filthy. What they're wearing is filthy garments. And God describes those filthy garments that Israel's wearing today when it says in Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah 64, 6, and this is Israel speaking, we are all as an unclean thing, In all of our righteousnesses, what we think are good work, we do that makes us righteous, they're as filthy rags. And it's such a descriptive term, I'm not even going to say it in public what this word is, filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. Israel is speaking when they call themselves in Isaiah 64, 6, we are all as an unclean thing. When Israel is saved, they look at themselves and they say, we're dirty, we're rotten. And in, we are dirty, rotten sinners. And this is the confession that every person has to make when they're saved. If a person sees themselves as just well, perfectly fine, there's nothing wrong. Then God says, well, that's good, I can't help you. Because the Lord Jesus didn't come to call those who were perfectly fine. He didn't come to call those who were righteous or seemed righteous themselves. He came to call the dirty, rotten sinners to repentance. That's what he came, and that's what he said in in Luke 5.31, Luke 5.31, where he said, Jesus answering said unto them, they that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So when Israel is saved, they're going to see that the reason that they are an unclean thing and that they're wearing these filthy rags is because they're not wearing beautiful garments, They're wearing filthy rags. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And the very thing that was supposed to make them beautiful before God that they thought, you know, their good works, or as they say today, their acts of charity, their acts of charity, you probably heard that from Rabbi Goldstein. If you listen to the synagogue in Poway, he's a Lubavitcher. He's from the Chabad, and he speaks from the Rebbe, and the Rebbe in Brooklyn spoke often about you must do acts of charity. So that's why he said we must do acts of charity. All those are stained with sin. Why? Because their own righteousnesses, and they're unclean, and God says they're filthy.
0: Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God.